If you would, open your Bibles to Job chapter 26. Job chapter 26. We have heard the last speech of Job's friends, a mere five verses in length, chapter 25, the thrust of which is, God is unapproachable, man is not redeemable, creation is imperfect, and man is insignificant. In the final two verses of Bildad's last speech, he is reduced to name-calling. If you look at verses 5 and 6 of chapter 25, if even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes, how much less man who is but a maggot, a son of man who is only a worm. What Bildad has to say shouldn't surprise us when we consider what Eliphaz said in his last speech. You may remember the question was, is God interested in humanity at all? And Eliphaz's answer was, no, no, he's not. But both men hide their answers behind this this sort of exalted view of God, this transcendent God. But the God they point to is not only, he is only transcendent, he's above creation, he is not within creation. And so he's so far away, so distant, that he really is not concerned with humanity. Certainly not interested in redeeming humanity. Because human beings, after all, are insignificant. Well, if you've been with us through this series, you might begin to think that there's a certain irony in this position that they've taken. After seven days and seven nights of silence, after Job's primal scream, the friends try to make the case that all that has happened to, to Job is a result of some great sin he has committed, a sin that he is unwilling to admit to. That is to say, in a world of, of cause and effect, which God set up, Job is reaping the consequences of his actions, his sins. But I thought God wasn't interested in what we do. Well, Eliphaz tries to deal with this inconsistency by saying, well, God doesn't recognize the good things we do, our righteousness, but when we misbehave, if you wish, when we sin, then, then he gets involved. It's like a child who misbehaves to get attention. But when they're well-behaved, we may, in fact, ignore them. Bildad's speech that we looked at last week begins with a brief and beautiful doxology. It's really quite amazing. If you look at it, dominion and all belong to God. He establishes order in the heights of heaven. Can his forces be numbered? Upon whom does his light not rise? How then can a man be righteous before God? How can one born of woman be pure? In his view, God rules over all authority. He maintains peace. He commands all forces and all powers in the universe. He is the light of the world. He is holy. He is pure. And which of these points would we disagree with? None. We would agree with him. What's the problem? It's what Bildad does not say. And we'll come to this later in the sermon as well. It is, I think, the most significant difference between Job and his friends. What what Bildad does not say is that God is presence. That is, God is present in this creation, in this reality. And God is personality. See, God is not simply someone who's far, far away. He is here within his creation. And it isn't, he isn't just some type of force that you see in animistic beliefs or in Star Wars. You have this force that gives you the ability to do certain things. 
He is a person, one with whom we can interact. That's what we were made for, to interact with the Creator. And yet, in seeking to defend God against Job's accusations, Bildad and Eliphaz before him put God so far out of reach that he cannot be engaged in prayer or in conversation. So here's the problem. Bildad sees God as unapproachable. That is really contrary to the fact that God has revealed himself. Okay? So it isn't that he's far, far away. He has, in fact, revealed himself in his creation. And a faulty view of God, which Bildad has, leads to a faulty view of creation and of humanity itself. Today we will look at chapters 26 and 27, in which Job gives his final reply, if you wish, to his friends, his response. But he's not done. The Lord willing, next time I speak, uh, chapter 28 is a hymn to wisdom, a beautiful chapter. And then chapters 29, 30, and 31 is sort of Job's last stand. He makes his final appeal um, and proclaims his innocence. Today he wants to teach his friends. And if there is a title to the sermon, it would be, Let Me Teach You. His friends have failed to convince him by their teaching. Now it's his turn. Look, if you would, at the first four verses here in chapter 26. Then Job replied, How have you helped the powerless? How have you saved the arm that is feeble? What advice you have offered to one without wisdom, and what great insight you have displayed. Who has helped you utter these words, and whose spirit spoke from your mouth? One could just imagine that Job's not happy. In fact, he's, pro- he's pretty angry. Um, being referred to as a maggot or a worm, those which have the smell of death about them, as Job probably did himself in his condition, in beginning his answer, he, he uses the pronoun you, but because we have English, we don't recognize it. This is the first time in all of Job's speeches that it is you singular. He's talking to Bildad, not talking to the three friends. He's talking specifically to Bildad. Bildad is the object of this speech and Job's anger. And these first, well, verses 2 through 4 consist of a series of questions, which the NIV puts um, as more rhetorical statements. Uh, But they are, in fact, questions, six in all. And they can be paraphrased as this. Who have you ever helped? I mean, here they are supposedly helping their friend Job. It's like, who have you ever helped? How have you helped the powerless? How have you saved the arm that is feeble? Then he goes on to say is, how in the world... Did you ever develop or think you had a reputation for giving sound advice? There's nothing worse than someone who doesn't know anything, knows little about your situation, telling you, in fact, what you should do. These are friends of Job, but, boy, where do they get off telling him all these things? One might even ask, where did you go to school? You call this help? You, You guys don't have a clue as to what you're doing. But you specifically build that. You do not. And who do you think you're speaking to? I'm not a pathetic, foolish old man. You need to know your audience. Part of the problem is they haven't been listening to Job. 
And then lastly, what in the world prompts you to speak with the tone that you do? Are you inspired by God? If you look at verse 4, whose spirit spoke from your mouth? At this point, we can imagine that Job pauses, waiting for an answer, but there's no answer coming. Zophar's not going to speak. He's done. Eliphaz and uh, Bildad, they're done. In the next six chapters, we will find at certain points what we perceive to be a pause where Job's like, okay, what have you got to say? And in fact, they have nothing more to say. So Job says, let me teach you. He begins in verse 5 through verse 14 saying, let me teach you about God's power. Now, the friends know about God's power. They've spoken about it. In chapter 5, uh, verses 8 through 16, Eliphaz says that he performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. Bildad in chapter 25 says, dominion and all belong to God. Zophar in chapter 11 said, can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? So Job's not denying that what they have said is true. But in fact, he wants to show them how little they actually know about the power of God. And he begins with what to me at least is a strange thing. He begins with the underworld of the dead. That which we fear because we know so little of it. And I would argue that Job and his friends knew even less than we do because we've had the revelation of Jesus and he was raised from the dead. Um, verses 5 and 6. The dead are in deep anguish, those beneath the waters and all that live in them. Death is naked before God. Destruction lies uncovered. It was believed in the ancient world that when people died that they went to a place that was beneath the waters. Here he uses two words that in other translations might be left in the original. Death is Sheol, oftentimes translated as a grave, and destruction is Abaddon. Abaddon is a word that appears six times in the Old Testament, three times in Job, but four times that it appears in the Old Testament, it's with Sheol. So it's sort of a pairing, uh, death and destruction, Sheol and Abaddon. It appears one time in the New Testament, interestingly enough, in the book of Revelation. They had as king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, Apollyon, that is the destroyer. What's Job talking about here? What is this all about? God has complete control. He has complete mastery over the realm of the dead. It isn't as though when you're here and you're alive, God can... Job isn't saying that God can take care of things, but once you die, you're out of God's hands. No, God has mastery even over the grave. The waters is one of the words that is used in the ancient world. Death, that is Sheol, and destruction. That about which we know so little, God is in control of. For some reason, we seem to think the things that we know about, God is in control of that because we know about them. And Job is saying, you know, the things you don't know about, the things that really scare you because you don't know anything about them, yeah, God's in charge of that as well. He has complete mastery over it. Wouldn't the three friends agree with this? I'm not sure. 
Because if you go back over and read the things that they've said, they seem to think that God is limited to the things that they can perceive with the senses. The things they can see or hear or taste. Um, that God has control over the things I know. And Job's like, no. God has control over the things you don't know. Then he moves on to creation. Verses 7 to 14. Follow along if you would as I read. He spreads out the northern skies over empty space. He suspends the earth over nothing. He wraps up the waters in his clouds, yet the clouds do not burst under their weight. He covers the face of the full moon, spreading his clouds over it. He marks out the horizon on the face of the waters for a boundary between light and darkness. The pillars of the heavens quake, aghast at his rebuke. By his power, he churned up the sea. By his wisdom, he cut Rahab to pieces. By his breath, the skies became fair. His hand pierced the gliding serpent. And these are but the outer fringe of his works. How faint the whisper we hear of him. Who then can understand the thunder of his power? When God created the world, it was like pitching a tent. But he pitched it on nothing. On nothing. It is as though God began the process by walking out into nothingness, the nothingness of space. And then stretched out a canopy, stretched out a canvas, and then hung the world on nothing. And it remains to this day. He spreads and he suspends. We are too modern for our own good. We are so scientifically informed that we know about the earth you know, rotating on its axis, revolving around the sun. We know about the forces of gravity. But shouldn't we be in awe and just say, how? How did this happen? Under the canopy that God has stretched out, he continues his work, his wondrous works. He binds clouds as one stores wine in a wineskin. And yet, the clouds, which are full of water, don't necessarily drop the water in rain. With the same clouds, he covers the, full, the face of the full moon. In the King James, for verse number 9, it says, He holdeth back the face of his throne and spreadeth his cloud upon it. The point is this. God is the one who does this. It is God who does this. Verse 10, he sets the horizons. For us, it's the farthest limit of what we can see. He draws a boundary line between light and darkness. He can shake the foundations of his creations. And he has power over all things. And it's at this point in verse number 12 that we hear about Rahab. Um, in the King James, it is translated as the proud. In verse 13, it's referred to as the gliding serpent. So the second time that Rahab has been mentioned in the book of Job, it's also mentioned in the book of Psalms. Rahab is one of the monsters, along with Leviathan, who were thought to inhabit the depths of the sea. Because of their role in mythology, in ancient mythology, those who were not followers of God, these creatures symbolize the forces of chaos. They are in opposition to God, who is a God of order. So who wins, chaos or order? Leviathan, Rahab, or God? And Job says, let me teach you. 
God created the world. He suspended the world, the earth on nothing. He continues to sustain it. And his order is greater than the chaos that those believed in back in the ancient world. These are all amazing, but we must be careful that we don't limit God's activities and suppose that God is confined to what he can do within his creation. Job's point here is what he's talking about. It's like the outer fringes. of. It's not like even the heart of what God does. When one apprehends the wonder of God's power and his works, we should realize that we are seeing but a fraction, a tiny, tiny fraction of all he has done. And it is a faint whisper. Isn't that what Job says? How faint the whisper we have heard of him. Yet God can be a God of thunder. He has done far more than we can perceive. But he's continuing to teach his friends in the next chapter, chapter 27. Look, if you would, at the first six verses. And Job continued this discourse, or his discourse. As surely as God lives, who has denied me justice, the Almighty who has made me taste bitterness of soul, as long as I have life within me, the breath of God is in my nostrils. The breath of God in my nostrils. My lips will not speak wickedness, and my tongue will utter no deceit. I will never admit that you are in the right. Till I die, I will not deny my integrity. I will maintain my righteousness and never let go of it. My conscience will not reproach me as long as I live. Sorry, as long as I live. Here's the point that I said earlier that it's like the major difference between Job and his friends. One commentator puts it this way. Strange as it seems, in all the wordy discourses of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, not one of them has addressed God or prayed to him. Evidently, he is so distant, and they are so fearful, there is no communication. Job is quite the opposite. He prays to God, speaks to God, complains to God, fights with God. None of Job's friends pray. It is Job who prays. As we saw early in many of his responses, the first part was addressed to the friends, but the second part was a prayer to God. Instead, these friends have argued with Job. They try to persuade him. Their view of God is correct. Their theology is correct. This means that Job has done something really, really bad, and that's why all these things have happened to him. He needs to repent and be restored to God and prosperity. The author I just read earlier, a commentator on Job, uh, mentions a speaker who noted that Jesus had a stormy prayer life, but a calm public life. This is certainly what we see in the last hours of his life. The speaker who said this confessed that his own prayer life and public life were just the reverse. He prayed in calm and stormed in public. Would we not confess the same? Without going too much on a tangent, uh, Dave introduced me to someone named Jordan Peterson, and I've been reading 
his work and listening to things on YouTube. And one of the things he talks about is that serious conversations oftentimes involve conflict. Even if you're having a conversation within yourself, when you're trying to figure things out, it isn't this calm, can get pretty nasty because you're trying to work things out. That's what we find in Job. As he prays to God, he isn't this calm, meek, whatever you say. He is really engaged. He wants to know what's going on. He is the one who's truly praying. His friends aren't. They are the ones who are telling Job, this is what you've done wrong and you need to repent. They've never talked to God. They've never spoken to him, at least not in the context of the book of Job. Job's public relations with his friends are anything but calm. But his prayers to God are even less so. Here we hear Job storming against God. Job accuses him of being the one who has denied him justice, the one who has made him taste bitterness of soul. And yet at the same time, Job says, you are the one who gave me life. As long as I have life within me, the breath of God within my nostrils. God is seen as the creator and the sustainer of life. We may, in fact, engage with God, sometimes with anger, perhaps even bitterness, because we don't understand what's going on. That's fine. That's part of a serious conversation. Yet at the same time, we never should lose sight of the fact that we are made in his image. He is God. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. It's not like we set one aside so we can jump into the ring and, and wrestle with him. As we wrestle in prayer, we're doing so within the context that we believe that God exists. Job professes his innocence in the strongest terms. I will never admit that you are in the right. Till I die, I will not deny my integrity. I will maintain my righteousness and never let go of it. I said that Job is teaching his friends the fear of the Lord. Is, is this what we call the fear of the Lord? Yes. Yes, it is. In Job's case, it is. Because he is not being stoic. We talked about that last week. He isn't sort of, I'll grin and bear it. I'll just hold on. I'll bite the bullet, whatever expression you want to use, until this all is finished. Job wants to know what's going on. And he is willing to take the risk of challenging God. He knows that he can ask God hard questions. Because God is not capricious. God is not temperamental. He's not unstable. He's not cruel. He is not mean. Do we believe that? I mean, when difficult things happen in our lives, do we continue to hold on to the fact that God is good? Or then does, in fact, our view of God change? And we begin to think, well, boy, God just has a bad temper, a short temper. He's capricious in the things that he does. And at some point, we may even come to the conclusion that God's just cruel. How could he allow these things to happen? Job knows that he can ask God hard questions because he is just, he is reliable, and he is trustworthy. 
Think of the parable of the talents that's found in Matthew 25. By the way, Matthew 25, this, these, as Matthew records it, the last public teachings of Jesus. Um, after that, we have the Last Supper, and then his betrayal, his trial, and his death. In the parable of the talents, the parable of the talents, we know what the last servant thought of the master. He said, that if you remember, he gave five talents to one, two to one, and one to the last. And the last guy took the talent and buried it in the ground. And why? I knew that you are a hard man. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. His fear kept him from taking any risk, whatever, with his master's money. What did the other two servants think of the master? We're not told directly, but we find that they were willing to take risks. They invested the money and they doubled the money because they were willing to take a risk. Are we willing to take a risk with God? When we think of the fear of the Lord, when we think of prayer, are we afraid that we might say the wrong thing, that we might offend him? It's a good possibility, but are we willing to take the risk? Or do we play it safe? If we talk about theology, that's a lot less risky. I mean, we can get into arguments with one another, but, but God's not involved. It's just between human beings. We can talk theology and talk about God, the God of the universe, and all these various things. Um, are we willing to take risk? Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Gia read to us today from Luke, where already Jesus is anticipating what's going to happen. So it's like, wait a minute, Jesus, you, you know what's supposed to happen. So why are you asking for it not to happen? He is, in fact, taking a risk. When it comes to Jesus in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, we usually run to the end where it says, your will be done. Not my will, but your will be done. We skip the part where he says, my soul is overwhelmed to the, of, with sorrow to the point of death, that he was in anguish, that he sweat like drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus prayed for something else, another option rather than death. And it wasn't rebellion. Okay. It wasn't rebellion. It was engaging the Father in prayer. One more issue before I move on. In verse number six, Job says, my conscience will not reproach me as long as I live. Um, and I just want to point out that your conscience is not always a reliable guide to what is true. No, let your conscience be your guide. Please do not. Okay, don't do that. Um, our consciences can be and should be trained to react in line with God's law, with what God says is right. These are the things that we should do. We are sinners. Our consciences are marred. They are fallen. Do not trust your conscience. Paul told the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 4, 4, my conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. He's the apostle Paul, and he's like, I got a clear conscience, but that doesn't make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me, Paul tells them. So a clear conscience is not always an accurate barometer of one's true state. 
Job does know that he has not committed some great sin, some great wickedness for which God would afflict him with all these things that have happened to him. Standing between his clear conscience and God's judgment and his justice, Job says, I am innocent. One more question before we move away from the issue of conscience. If conscience is not always an accurate guide, is it not possible that one can step over the line in taking risks with God? Absolutely, and I would argue Job does. Job doesn't just sort of go up to the line. I think he, in fact, goes too far, and that's why God will address him in the chapters to come. And then Job will confess. He will speak in confession. Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. It is possible to go too far in our arguing or our disputing with God. But Job's on a pilgrimage of faith. And sometimes in the pilgrimage, you fall into the ditch. By the grace of God, you climb out and you continue on the pilgrimage. Job steps over the line because he takes risk. But at the end of the book, as I told you, God tells Eliphaz and the friends, listen, Job's going to pray for you because you guys need it. Okay? My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. If we take risk, we will fail. Okay? Not in everything, but we're fallen. We're not perfect. So in our dealings with God, we might in fact fail, but we can learn and we can grow. In the last part of this chapter, Job says, let me teach you about God's justice. It begins with rather harsh words in verses 7 through 10. This would come in under the category of imprecatory. We've talked about this a long time ago. It comes from the word imprecate, which means to call judgment down on someone. An imprecatory prayer is when you pray for God to do something, usually terrible, in judgment, to someone who has done something that is wrong. Job has said that he is innocent and he wants all hostility to be removed, but he wants his enemies to be punished just as the wicked and unjust are to be punished without hope, verse 8, we'll see, without deliverance, verses nine, or verse 9, and then without any calling out to God. He doesn't say who his enemies are directly. Um, I think he's talking about his friends. Look, if you would, at verses 7 through 10. May my enemies be like the wicked, my adversaries like the unjust. For what hope has the godless when he is cut off, when God takes away his life? Does God listen to his cry when distress comes upon him? Will he find delight in the Almighty? Will he call upon God at all times? Interesting. They have not, in fact, called upon God. But if something bad happens to them, will they call upon God? His intention is found in verses 11 and 12. I will teach you about the power of God. The ways of the Almighty I will not conceal. You have, seen, you have all seen this yourselves. 
when will this meaningless talk, why then this meaningless talk? He's going to say, why, when will this cease? Yeah, he wants them to stop talking. They have tried to teach him, and now it is his time to teach them. And in the rest of the chapter, verses 13 to 23, we have the certain punishment of the wicked. Verse 13, here is the fate that God allows to the wicked, the heritage a ruthless man receives from the Almighty. However many his children, their fate is the sword. His offspring will never have enough to eat. The plague will bury those who survive him, and their widows will not weep for them. Though he heaps up silver like dust and clothes like piles of clay, what he lays up the righteous will wear, and the innocent will divide his silver. The house he builds is like a moth's cocoon, like a hut built or made by a watchman. He lies down wealthy, but will do so no more. When he opens his eyes, all is gone. Terrors overtake him like a flood. A tempest snatches him away in the night. The east wind carries him off and he is gone. It sweeps him out of his place. It hurls itself against him without mercy as he flees headlong from its power. It claps its hands in derision and hisses him out of his place. Just a side note. There are some people who think that the words that are spoken here, because at least in the beginning, verses 13 and 14 and on, it seems to be talking about Job. He lost his kids. He lost all his possessions. And so some people are like, no, this is actually Zophar's third speech. Um, And I would disagree. I think this is Job speaking. It is Job speaking. What he does, and let me just give you the outline of it, He talks about the devastation of one's family, the loss of all his wealth, the destruction of his house, death for his body, dread for his soul, desperation, and then verse 23, the curtain falls. End of story. In chapter 24, Job asks, why is there no judgment? Specifically for those who abuse the weak in society, those who rebel against the light. And then Job says, well, yeah, there in fact will be judgment for them. God will judge such people. And now he reaffirms that. He's speaking to Bildad, but he wants to reaffirm what he said earlier, that in fact there will be judgment for those who do what is wrong. I think in our day, at least in my opinion, people would be very uncomfortable with such a passage. And so... They would try to escape the force of it. They tried to make it a bit softer or weaker in one of two ways. Either Job is talking about really, really bad people. Not me. Certainly couldn't be talking about me, but, you know, the really, really wicked people. Or they would say Job is wrong. God is a God of love. God would never do these things. That this is Job speaking and not God. Let's talk about judgment here at the end of the sermon. Let's work through this concept of judgment. First of all, let's begin with the understanding that there is such a thing as morality. There are things that are right and things that are wrong. 
And at this point, we lose some people because they would say, no, morality, in fact, is a result of conditioning, social contract, all these various things, that in certain cultures, certain things are wrong, in other cultures, they're not. So you can't have like this absolute morality of right and wrong because different cultures teach different things. There cannot be a universal moral code. Um, we could make an argument in terms of culture, cultural anthropology and philosophy, that there are certain things that are universally condemned. But let's not go that route. Let's look at scripture. So, first of all, we must affirm that there is right and wrong. Secondly, we would continue by affirming that God is the source of morality. He is holy. It is his character. It is his being which establishes what is right and what is wrong. And since he made the universe, then there is a universal moral code, which is based on his character. Thirdly, this moral code is given to those who are made in his image. We are made in the image of God. And even though the whole creation is corrupted as a result of man's rebellion, we would say that sin is the capacity of human beings, not of the rest of creation. Animals cannot sin. They can do things that make us crazy, but it's not sin. Only human beings can sin. And why is that? Because we are made in the image of God. God has given us a universal moral code, and we break that code. Fourth, we, must, we maintain that to break this moral code is not an insignificant act. It's like, oh, my bad. No, it's actually much worse than that. And it is seen in the fact that there are consequences for doing so. By the way, you know that a law is important if there are consequences to breaking it. If there are no consequences to breaking the law, then the law is sort of meaningless. It's like, well, we hope you guys do this. But when there are consequences to breaking the law, then that law has force. And God has given us a universal moral code. And if we break it, there are consequences. Otherwise, if there are no consequences, then there's really no importance to whatever it is we do. Fifthly, God is the lawgiver. He has the right, as the judge, to establish the punishment and to inflict it as well. And lastly, judgment tells us that human beings have significance. If there is no system of right and wrong, I would argue human beings then lose significance. We're just like animals. We don't sin. Animals don't sin. We just do whatever it is that we want. And yeah, I might, I might be offended. I might be hurt if you do something against me or against someone that I love. Um, yeah, but it really isn't a sin. It's just you doing your thing. No. We are made in the image of God, God gave us right and wrong and a sense of right and wrong. And even those who do not know God internally know that there are certain things that are right, certain things that are wrong. Their system may be twisted, but they know. Do these things and don't do these things.
So, let's wrap this up. When you are faced with the reality of evil in the world, and the reality of injustice, and the reality of sin, and you're talking about judgment versus forgiveness, what is to be our response? What is to be our response to sin? I think there are one of three options. The first is we take matters into our own hands. This is very tempting. So the words of Jesus that if someone you know, strikes you on the cheek, turn the other cheek, yeah, that, that's real. that goes contrary to what is natural for us. We want to strike back. So the first option when we are confronted with sin is to take matter into our own hands. The second is to be passive and not do anything, to be stoic. The third is to appeal to the one who can make things right. And that's what Job is all about. Things are not right, and he calls on God to make things right. Job says, I haven't done anything wrong. I don't need to repent. My conscience is clear. You, know, you deal with all these wicked people. God, let me, you friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, let me, tell, let me teach you about God's justice. But somehow that's not working in my life right now, and Job wants God to make things right. The next chapter, chapter 28, Job gives us a wonderful hymn to wisdom. And it ends with these words, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to do evil is understanding. We live in the midst of a pandemic, but also by spreading chaos, chaos all around us. And what are we to do? We can either take matters into our own hands, we can be passive, you know, grin and bear it, bite the bullet, this too shall pass. Or we can, in fact, appeal to the one who can make things right. That's what Job does. That's not what his friends do. They don't pray. This entire book, they do not pray. Job does because he knows that God can make things right. I wonder if we believe that. Let's pray together. Father, when things are going well, swimmingly well, we might tip our hat to you and say thank you for a wonderful life that things are going well. We barely think about who you are, your character. But then when things go really badly, at that point we might lose it and begin to think that you're just cruel and mean capricious, short-tempered. I thank you for the example of Job on this pilgrimage of faith, who affirms, who argues that he is in the right, and yet at the same time maintains that you are a God of justice. You are holy. You will do what is right. And thus the tension in his life if you do what is right, why are these things happening to Job? Uh, 
I suspect that we have a very domesticated view of prayer, domestic, a very tame view of prayer, in which we just repeat certain platitudes, bless this person, do this for this other person. We don't risk, we don't challenge, we don't question why things are happening. We're afraid that we'll get it wrong. May we recognize that that's a given. We are fallen after all. May we follow the example of Job. And, and risk it. Risk asking you the hard questions. At the same time, trusting that you are holy and you are just. You will do what is right. May your spirit bring these truths home to our hearts. May we think on them, meditate on them in the days to come. We thank you for this first day of a new week. May your spirit and your grace be with us. May we have a sense of your presence as we walk through the world. By your grace, I ask you would keep us safe from harm. We pray that not only for ourselves, but for our neighbors, for our city, for our state, our nation. May we trust you. Thank you for loving us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.